Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensics Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, I'll talk about wildlife filmmaking with Carol Foster. Carol and her husband, Richard Foster, are documentary filmmakers specializing in natural history and the environment. Working out of their jungle studio in Belize, they have made films for the major networks including National Geographic and BBC. Both Carol and Richard are highly experienced at bringing to the screen the intricate, hidden stories of natural behavior. Both have worked all over the world winning multiple awards for their work. The Foster's work has been cited by veteran wildlife filmmaker Chris Palmer in his book Shooting in the Wild as an excellent example of what he calls ethical staging, meaning that staging can be honest and open and can minimize harm to the animals. He also notes that Carol and Richard often get footage of wildlife that opens up worlds previously known only to biologists. Living in Belize with the rainforest and the barrier reef on their doorstep, Carol Foster and her husband take advantage of the opportunities to find and film material not easily achieved by visiting filmmakers. Indeed, they've constructed a special studio that allows them to film wild behavior that would not otherwise be possible. For example, Carol explains how they've captured on film a baby cantile viper wriggling the green tip of its tail over its head to attract and capture frogs, and also how they've been able to film flower mites hitchhiking in the nostrils of hummingbirds. They are currently using their skills to highlight the threats to the environment and nature by humans and climate change, subjects to which they are both passionately committed. When I spoke to Carol, I asked her how she first got interested in filmmaking. Well, I used to live in uh, Panama in in uh, Central America. When I was in Panama, I worked with uh, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, um, and I used to do research on Bar Colorado Island. My background, I have a biology degree and also a medical technology degree, but I got to work on Bar Colorado Island, and, um, and I always liked working out in the forest and working with animals. I was always in nature since I was a kid. I used to collect snakes and bring them home. And my mother used to go crazy. But I used to do all that stuff, and I loved working out in the forest. So I had this opportunity to work with the Smithsonian. And when I was there working, and I did a lot of research dealing with lizard malaria. That sounds crazy. Lizard, lizard Wait, hold on. Lizard malaria. Lizard malaria. What, what vector, is lizard malaria? <laughs> right. Well, there you go. We were trying to, there was someone who studied the lizard, and they, uh, a little lizard called an anolis. It's a little small lizard. They're very common in Central America. And these lizards had, they were drawing blood from them from their toes and making slides. They didn't kill the animal, but they just took the toe off and just made a slide. And in the slide, they found the malaria parasite in the blood. And they were trying to figure out, you know, what malaria parasite it was, if it affected the animal's life cycle, you know, and all this. And believe it or not, I got involved with this because my background was biology and medical technology. So I got involved with this lizard malaria, and we used to go out and collect lizards, draw their blood, put them back, and, and figured out what type of malaria they had. So that was one of my studies, and we did figure out it was just one species of malaria this uh, lizard had, and it lived its whole life cycle. Um, I know that might not sound interesting <laughs> to anybody, but it was pretty and cool. And did it affect the lizard? No, it didn't affect the lizard's lifespan at all. It 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 just thrived on the lizard. It it the the malaria was growing in the lizard. It was fine. The worms. Now there was nematodes in the stomachs, and that that did affect them, and they didn't live their lifespan. But the malaria is in the blood, so the malaria um, uh, parasite, you know, kept the lizard alive. So it could stay alive. So, and then if another mosquito came and bit it, then um, and bit another lizard, then that's how it's it it is transmitted, just like it is transmitted in humans um, to lizards. And they just wanted to see the lifestyle. <laughs> that was way back in. Remember, that was way back in 1970. No, wait a minute, 1980 some, 83. <laughs> Wow, 
Wow. So so we did that, and then we. I, I looked. And at, I'm like, one of those people who is actually finding the lizard malaria very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, you know, who was like, and, and then like I looked at um, spider web dynamics, where we used to um, look at the web of spiders, how strong they are, um, and what like insects, like a, the size of insects, and how big and how large or the weight of the insects could withhold that and get caught in the web. And we used to put little fans, like, you know, little fans on them. And so we used to put the fan on one and see how strong the, the web was and two and three. And so, you know, the, the, the biggest wind went through them and, and, and you know, broke them. And we would do stuff like that, you know. Oh, interesting. And I, I know. <laughs> and then I, I, I did a lot of work with a lot of people. At that time, I just had a biology degree. I didn't have a PhD degree in biology. But I, because I had a lot of background in a lot of different areas, uh, people would just hire me on. So I did a lot of different um, projects. And so I worked with uh, different people uh, doing different things there in, in Bar, Colorado Island. And so I was kind of... It was really a lot of fun. And then I studied um, blood parasites in, like, iguanas and frogs um, to see if, if, like, if any of the parasites, blood parasites, affected their life cycles. And as, as you know, frogs now are having a hard time, but that's with the fungus. Um, but we didn't find any, any problems with the parasites that they had for their for them dying off, but um, there were some parasites that some frogs got that were um, that did affect their life cycle, but um, it wasn't like this fungus that's going on now. So I, I did, and I also looked at um, Chagas disease in humans, uh, this trypanosome that, that is a blood parasite that um, affects humans in Panama and in, in the tropics, and so I worked on that and, and also malaria. So I did a lot of things when I was in Panama. So then what happened? So then in Panama is where I met Richard, my husband, who was filming at the time. And so while he was filming... And what he was he to... filming? Was he filming he your was, work? He was, or... um, and he was in Bar, Colorado Island, filming scientists, studying like the sloth, you know, uh, the howler monkeys, um, snakes. Um, and then um, he wanted to know what I was looking at. So he was doing such filming some of my work because I was working with other scientists. And that's when I met him. And I thought, you know, this would be cool if I could work on films, make films to show the world what I see and how important it is for, you know, for everybody and how important nature is and how I just wanted to show people how important nature is and what I was seeing and how fascinating it was. So I kind of got in the filming business through Richard, and I thought, wow, if I only can get in here with him, you know, and with the knowledge I know, then I can show the world what I see. So then you started working with him? asked me if I wanted to work on films because of my research background, and that he lives in Belize, and I thought, what is the hell's Belize? I didn't even know. I kept thinking it was British Honduras still, you know, and here I was in Panama, I'm going, oh, brother. So anyway, so I went I was, um, so then I went back to the States, worked in the lab, and then he asked me if I wanted to work on a project in Belize called Path of the Rain God, and I said, yes. So I went there, I went back, and I lived in Belize, again, I went back to Central America and worked on Path of the Rain God, and um, so I was able to use my knowledge of the forest and the research I did to bring out the stories of the animals to show people how fascinating they were, and, and, and to bring it together and show the ecology of it and how we all fit in. And so that is my passion. So, so ever since Path then... Of the, Path of the Rain God was specifically about Belize ecology, or...? Yeah, Path of the Rain God was a three-part series that was from... It started from the mountains of Belize. It followed the water system from the mountains of Belize through the rivers and the forest all the way down to the ocean. So it and and all the animals involved with that path. So that's it was it's an, it was a very innovative film at the time, you know. But that's it was about the ecology of the the whole systems of Belize, and so that's my first 
film. And what made it innovative, and when was it released? Um, it was put out in, i got to remember now, hold on. All right, it was put out in 1980, Path of the Rain God was put out in 1985. Um, and that was innovative because it was like one of the first ones that followed a, a river system or followed a system, where which was important to the ecology of both the the environment and the animals, and how they both connected and how important it was to have that. So, And then in each section, like in the mountains, there were specific animals that lived there, but the same animals lived along the river forest, and then, then the animals changed into the ocean. So basically, um, it was the, the films that, that was different for that time. And that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> no, it sounds it sounds interesting because even today we're not really following systems like that. No, they're starting to now again, but it's not like they're starting to do. We're doing series parts of series now. What's happening now in the filming business is that the broadcasters are just ha- hiring their their um, they're doing everything in house. So basically, the independents are doing sequences for their big series. So right now they're just starting. Like they did a migration one, Geographic did a migration one, and we did we did a couple series for them for their migration series. BBCs are doing series, and we're doing because everything's being done in house. I don't know if you need to say any of this, but that that's what's happening now. Oh, interesting. But, but like now with individual people, they they for independents aren't being hired like they were before. It's it's quite different. Like we want to do an hour, they like to have the hour fit in with the series, and then they have to have control of it. So it's quite quite different. Like, we did a three-part series in Africa called Okavango, Jew of the Kalahari, and it was a three-part series, and it was done a long time ago, but we, you know, we did the, uh, the different systems in from the desert to the, you know, how the water came in the desert and what it left, you know, it was just... But that's the kind of films we used to do, and we still... I mean, there's hours here and there, but not many anymore. What's so special about Belize? Why was Richard living there, and why have you stayed there? Oh, so special. Uh, Well, one thing that's special about Belize is that there's still forest left, and also the fact that there there was a lot of forest left there before compared to other places in Central and South and Central America. Now, um... I mean, as every place else is going, the forest is starting to go. But still, there's still a lot of forest, and there's still a lot of there's still a lot of wildlife there compared to places in Central America. And even though it's going, there's still enough for people to study, and still enough for people to look at, you know, and to film. So I think it's intriguing because of that. The forest is some forest is still intact. And the fact that you can go out in areas and you'd have to sit a long time waiting to see animals, but that you can still see a lot of animals and birds and the wildlife. Um, so it, because it's still there, and that's why we're still living there and we can still make films out of there. Now, how does your approach differ from other filmmakers. In in his book, Shooting in the Wild, veteran wildlife filmmaker Chris Palmer cites you and Richard as a good example of what he calls ethical staging. And he says mm-hmm. your work demonstrates that staging can be honest and open and can minimize harm to the animals. Right. Okay, well, when you if you look the films throughout you know, the world, it's very difficult to film in a tropical rainforest. It is very hard to see animals because they're mostly nocturnal. And even with the highest technology equipment, you cannot do it. You can get the infrared cameras where you can see at night and stuff, but you cannot really show their behavior in detail. So in order to, to make people understand what these animals do, how they how they are in part of the web of the whole life of the forest. You have to do them in huge enclosures. So you have to go out and say you just say for example you're just doing bats. Okay, you have to go out capture the bats, put them in an enclosure. Like you have to build big caves, and then where they would roost, you have to build like just plant the 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 trees, the fruits, 
plants that they would feed on. You have to build a big enclosure just like it is out in the wild. And then you put them in there and then they start adapting to it. And then they start doing what they do as if they're in the wild. So that's what we do. We do the setup as if they're in the wild. We capture them, put them in there, and then we let them do their thing. And then what we do is we build ports and, you know, to, to film them. So they don't see us, but we see them. And, and we put the lights, we get them adjusted to certain, like, moonlight, especially bats, and, you know, and, th- and that's how we do it. I mean, otherwise, you would never know what a bat would be doing at night or what, you know, or even a kinkajou or a, you know, a lot of, lot of tropical animals, even in the daytime, like tapir are hard to, to see. If they see you and smell you, they're off. So when it comes to the tropics, and that's where we live, and that's where our passion's at. That's what you have to do. Um, so basically, you know, that's, that's where. So in our backyard, lots of times we have these huge enclosures. We build a big cave set in our, um, one of our buildings where the, we build a cave set with the water system going through and a water opossum catching fish and, uh, you know, the fish with, um, the albino fish that live in the caves. We, we did it all in a set. And then when we're done with those animals, we put them back where we got them. And, it, you know, and, and so that's, and, you know, that's how we work with the animals. Take me through one of your, one of your shoots, because you have to first identify, first you build the set or determine what you need yeah, to Yeah, first of all, set. first of all, because we know Belize so well, we know where most of the, we scoured the country, so we know where most of the animals that we need to shoot uh, we know where they they are, so um, we know where they are. We know the habitat, so we go ahead and build the enclosure for the animal first. Then, say we're going to collect, say, fishing bats. Okay, so we know that along the river, these fishing bats are fishing every night. So, first of all, we build the enclosure with the water, and we set the whole thing up. We also give them um, a tree where they could nest in because they do nest in these hollow trees. So we, we set that all up. Okay, after that, then we go along the river, and we set the mist nets, which are like bird nets that when you trap birds, you know, you use these nets to get them in. Well, it's the same kind of thing with bats. So we put these mist nets along the river, which takes, like could take night after night. It could take two or three weeks before we can catch the bats. Once we catch them, we put them in the set, and then we have to put lighting on them. And when you put the light on them, it might take a month before they get used to the light. So we have to feed them on a big stick fish by hand so they can eat and eat and eat so, that, so they don't die on us, so they get used to eating. But then all of a sudden when they get used to the light, they'll start fishing on their own. And the way they fish is they the fish in the water that we put in the water, they make these ripples on the top of the water, and they can echolocate the ripples. That's how they catch the fish. So then after they're used to the light, and they don't mind the light beating on the water, then they'll start echolocating on their own as if in the wild, and they'll start catching their fish. That, from the start to the finish, will take about two and a half months. Is that problematic for it to take that long to get? How much footage are you talking about for? Okay, uh, <laughs> for the foot- <laughs> so now that's the question. The footage. So, so we'll do it in, we'll do it in like slow motion, and we'll do it in regular speed, and then we'll do it in really slow motion. And so it'll depending on probably me about maybe two minutes of film. <laughs> And it all depends on how you use it. You could really expand it out and keep showing it in very slow motion, you know. And then you could show the feet grabbing the fish. And, you know, you could show it putting it into its mouth and coming up and then going onto the nest site or onto the, um, onto the um, tree and eating the fish. And then one time we had a male and a female who had a baby inside the tree. Nest, so we had the baby, them going into the nest and feeding the baby. So that was a little longer. That was about three minutes, <laughs> you know. So, you know, it just all depends on the situation. Sometimes, a lot of times, like we have um, uh, animals that have babies in the sets. So we filmed the babies. We had, do you know what a kinkajou is? Can you describe it? 
Yeah, I think it seems like a, it looks like a little berry animal. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really cute, and it's got round face, really fuzzy skin, a long tail. Um, and these animals are, like, related to the raccoon, but they're, they're in the trees. Um, and and are, they, are, are they diurnal or nocturnal? They're nocturnal. Nocturnal, and we had a pair from. I mean, we work closely with the Belize Zoo, um, so these animals, some animals, are from the zoo that are right, already established there, and um, so we'll work closely with them. And sometimes we'll use some of their ma- animals and take them over to a big enclosure. So we had a female from them, and we had a a huge enclosure with a big tree and she used to go into the tree into the hole in the tree and all of a sudden I heard this squeaking noise it was squeaking going I think a bird got caught in the nest and I looked and it was a baby kinkajou so that mother raised the baby kinkajou in the set and so the mother also took it out put it on top of this um, set we had papaya because that's what they eat normally they ate papaya fed the baby and so we got the whole life cycle. The same thing happened with a margay and baby just recently, a margay cat. And the margay had a baby and we raised the baby and the baby was so cute. Was grabbing the ear of the mother, hitting, slapping in the face. She used to, the baby used to slap the mother's face. So the mother <laughs> used to get so mad that she, the mother used to wiggle its tail. So the baby would play with the tail and not her face. So it was like, <laughs> I know, it used to bite, it's so cute. I mean, and so we watched the whole process of the mother taking care of a baby, you know, the Margay mother taking care of its baby, and it was always calling, always very attentive to it, and the the baby Margay was just like a brat, a bratty <laughs> kid, you know, it goes like, yeah, mom, goodbye, and he used to hide on her, and he, she used to have to always find her, because the, the enclosure was huge. So I mean, so it was how like big are, how big is the enclosure? Uh, um, oh God, well, that's really like, I can never. I'm bad in size, um, but like bigger than a house or um, yeah, it's like a house. It's like a house, like a big, huge house with you know all vegetation in it, and and then we have like ports, and because margays, uh, margays will uh, jump from tree to tree. We'll have a pour on top. It'll be very high, so we have a pour on top, so we can show the margay jumping, and then we have ports on the bottom when the margay's on the ground hunting, and then we have ports in the middle. So we have ports, so we can look through at the cat, or you know, when it's doing its thing. So we, and sometimes you can go in the enclosure with the with the margays because the margays usually don't care; <laughs> they just do their thing. And so- they caught a rat. The mother caught a rat in the enclosure. And you know, like how cats throw their prey up in the air, like regular domestic cats. Well, they did the same thing. the The mother threw the rat up in the air, and then the baby grabbed it and threw the cat, the rat, up in the air and started playing with his rat. <laughs> and it was, it's really cute because you know the wild cats basically do the same thing as domestic cats. Interesting. Now, when yeah. you say there are ports in the trees and on the ground and in the middle. Is that like blinds that you're looking through and filming, or yeah. automatic cameras, or yeah? Well, it's port. When I'm talking about ports, it's like um, um, it's like little windows, like a wood. So you open it up. So uh, in other words, it's like um, you just make a, a piece in the cage, and you make a wooden a wooden um, like door, and then you could open it up, and then you have black behind it and then you just have a hole in the black so you can look through when you have something like this cat you know the margay raising a baby or the kinkajou raising a baby and if that wasn't planned initially you're still filming it because it's an amazing opportunity but do you ever get into conflicts where you don't want to film it because that wasn't in the plan that wasn't the behavior you were trying to get Oh, no, we we take advantage of it because, it, well, it's a part of the life cycle of that animal. If we were just going to film that animal to, to that, um, you know, eats fruits and, and or, you know, takes nectar after plant, uh, take nectar after the plants or anything like that, then with with the extra baby involved, that's great because we just extend the, extend the story. And it is a we do take advantage of that because um, that animal is doing that animal is basically doing the same thing it would do out in the wild, and to have a baby, it's always so cute, and people love to see that, you know. So, 
Now, do you have different enclosures for each animal? And do you are you using the yes. same space and rebuilding each time? Or Yes. Normally, we have different enclosures for different animals. Um, and if, if sometimes if we use the same enclosure, we will, you know, change it around to fit the animal's needs. Um, and so, yeah, so... Most of the frogs, now, we don't do everything out in enclosures. So, like, when we do frog sequences, we go out into the field and we film the frogs out in the field. So the mating, the calling, the whole scene and what they do, how they how they um, attract their mates and all that. Lots of that stuff is done out in the wild. We do a lot of insect stuff out in the wild. We do a lot of, um, we do a bird stuff out in the wild. I mean, there are just certain animals, especially nocturnal animals, that you can't do out in the wild that we do in sets. And like we, when we went to Africa and Venezuela, we did an anaconda film. Most of that was out in the wild, except for the fact that we had to get the anaconda to to um, give birth, and that was difficult. So after we got filming most of the stuff out in the wild, we had to collect the ones that were gravid, put them in enclosures, and wait up, sit up all night waiting for them to give birth. So it took us two and a half months to get to get finally get them one of the anacondas that we had to give birth and we got it on film, but it just took two and a half months. We had about ten of them lined up and every night we'd look in an infrared camera to to see if she was actually gonna start pushing, you know. And they'd always push in the water or somewhere else they weren't supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> and they were, they were never where they were supposed to be. The scientist says, okay, between four, four and nine, they should give birth. Well, they gave birth, you know, at, you know, three o'clock in the morning in, in the water. And finally, the last one, after 13, after two and a half months, we got it. And uh, they give live birth, so they come out alive. And, and then some of the eggs, there are some eggs that are not fertilized. So those are the ones she eats because she hasn't eaten in, like, six months, because that's how long it takes for the, the babies to develop. So then, so in order for her to get the protein, she'll eat the unfertilized eggs. So we got all that on film, but it, but um, it took two and a half months to get that. And wow. that's, you know, most of that <laughs> stuff is out in the wild, yeah. So, so even, on a, even when you're setting up a shot like that, per se, it's extremely difficult to get yeah, it's extremely difficult to get action. Um, see, if you look at Africa, um, Africa is not as difficult as it is in the tropical rainforest um, because a lot of animals out in the wild, you can follow them. It's still difficult. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not difficult, but it you can. it's out in the open. You can follow them. You could stay with them. And it, it might take a long time for something to happen, but at least you can see them. In the tropical rainforest, in the forest, you can't. You know, it's hard to see these animals. So if you are following someone, you're going to be following them for years before you might see them. And, and lots of times they send to you and they're gone. So it is it is very difficult to, to film in the tropical forest. But in Venezuela, there was a swamp area. And so in this area, there were a lot of anacondas. So we're able to get them breeding. We're able to get them, you know, there's one, when they breed, the breed it's called a breeding ball, and there will be one female with about 12 males trying to mate her and just going around her trying to, you know, get inside of her. And it's, like, incredibly uh, amazing. And um, and then finally, when they're all done, <laughs> they go and then she goes off. And um, it takes about seven months before she has her young. And so, uh, but but in the swampy areas, like in the wide open swampy areas, you can see caiman and, and turtles and in, in the Pantanal where it's like that. But in, in tropical rainforests, it's just difficult. So it makes our life more difficult, but it's more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so for the anacondas, after the males mate with the female, they go away, and it takes seven months. So how did you know which females to Oh uh, well, we uh, the capture. we had a scientist. We had a scientist working with us, and he's been he was studying them. And we also filmed him. He was part of the film, so he's been he studied them for a long, long time. So he knew, um, you know, which ones were gravid and which ones were, and which ones were going to be possibly having them within the next, you know, within the two-month variable 
time. So, um, so that's how we knew. We normally work with scientists that study these animals for a while. That's very important. So we know how to handle them. We know how to care for them. We know, um, you know, what to do and and what to look for. And if you don't work with the scientists, then, you know, it's, it's useless. You'll mess it all up. But you really have to be careful, and you really have to know. And, and so we take great care with the animals also. So um, so that's we, we always do that. And, and, and plus, I have a biology background, too, and so I'm, I'm very, um, you know, careful with all, all this. And, but, you know, the main thing is to, just to show people what's out there and, you know, how, how important it is and, and how we should think about saving these things. <laughs> the anaconda film you were talking about, what, what was the name of that? It was called The Land of the Anaconda, and it was done with National Geographic. Going back to the idea of taking some animals out of the wild, what are some of the ones that you've ended up uh, having to right having to capture and then re-release? Well, well, the, well, a lot of them were like um, none of the monkeys, like all the monkeys we did out in the wild, like the howler monkeys and stuff, hummingbirds out in the wild, but also we, in order to capture their color and stuff. We used to capture them, put them in a set, and then have them, you know, drink the nectar from the flowers. But also, in order to tell a story about the hummingbirds, is that they carry mites on their beak. And the mites are in the flowers. So in order for the mites to go from flower to flower to survive, the hummingbird, when it takes the nectar, the mites go up its beak, and it carries it to the next flower. So in order to get that story, we had to build a set to show how the mites are being carried to add on to the story of the the flower and the nectar and the mites and the hummingbird and how it all works together. So the hummingbird was another um, animal that we captured. Um, when we did a rat film in India, we, in order to show the rats underground, we captured rats and built a huge underground uh, enclosure with the glass so that we could see them. And then the rat, the, the mother had babies, and we followed the babies until they got older and when they went out and how they they got their prey. So, um, you know, that was another animal we had to capture. A lot of the animals we have to capture are small. Now, if we have to do a jaguar, then we usually do it with a zoo or we have a big enclosure um, where the animal can uh, do its thing in in there, and then that animal is usually from the zoo or somebody gave it to us because they couldn't take care of it. So when it comes to that, that's the kind of animals we work on. Do you work on jaguars frequently? Because filming jaguars, I would think, is extremely difficult. Yeah, we did a whole one hour. We did a whole one hour on jaguars for uh, Talanova Company. Well, it was these people in... um, Actually, in Hollywood, <laughs> they have Mandalay, <laughs> and um, they came down and wanted to do. We did the first 35 millimeter uh, Jaguar film, but then they put it in high def for the Japanese, and um, it was a whole one hour. We built enclosures down in an area where there was a cave, and uh, a cave and forest, huge enclosures, and the cat was um, one of the one of the cats that we had. And we put him in the enclosure, and he did his thing. <laughs> he caught a crocodile. He did. There was like crocodiles in the pool, baby crocodiles in the pools, and there was, you know, fish and turtles. And he caught them like a regular cat. And we filmed them, and we were able to go in the enclosure with them because cats, cats normally, they, they, jaguars aren't known to attack people unless they're provoked or if they have food. So when we were able to go into the enclosure with that cat until he was eating. And once he was eating, we weren't allowed to go in. He didn't like you being in there. <laughs> so in the enclosure, there was a river, there was a cave. there was It was huge, very big. And um, so we got close to him. We even have pictures of us close to him, shooting him in the water, um, shooting him, you know, just going around in the forest and drinking. And, you know, but then when he was catching the animal, to feed, we'd be outside filming through a port. So we did that, and we did them going up trees and what all their prey are, what their prey do, 
And um, so, yeah, we did an hour. And then in lots of uh, tropical rainforest films, they want uh, pictures of cats. And they're very difficult to get. You can now sometimes get them down the Pantanal uh, because they're baiting them in. <laughs> but um, but usually, you know, you can't, you can't get cats. So we did, yeah, we did a lot of jaguar stuff. In Chris Palmer's book, Shooting in the Wild, he also notes that because of how you do this in building sets, you're actually able to get footage of wildlife that was previously really known only to biologists, and it really opens up. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing because, like, there's um, a sequence we had with a, um, a snake, and it's called a cantail snake. And it's a snake that has, um, when it's young, it has a green tip on its tail. So we had this, this snake. It was gravid. We stayed up 24 hours for, I don't know, a week with it because it was going to have young. So I'd stay up and <laughs> wait to see if it had young, and I'd wake up Richard if it started to give birth. So it gave birth. The minute it gave birth, it coiled up, and it stuck its tail up in the air. Now, the tip of its tail is yellow. The snake is brown. And... We put it in a in a tank along a river, like if it was a, like if it was a little small pond, and we put these little frogs in there. And the snake would see the frogs, and its tail was up in the air and wiggle its tail. And when it wiggled its tail, the frog thought it was a sperm, and it jumped up and grabbed it. When it jumped up and grabbed it, the snake would come around and grab the frog. And that they thought that that was happened. Scientists thought that happened, but until we recorded it, did they know that it was true? So there are situations like that that happened with us that, you know, scientists really didn't know if it was true until they saw the footage. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there, like, there are things like that that, you know, when you're filming and you're watching these animals for all these many hours and hours and hours, and sometimes scientists would come to us and say, wow, this is so cool, we've never seen this. I mean, it was documented and we thought this happened, because you couldn't figure out sometimes animals have colorations, you don't know why, or or they have some sort of weird behavior, you don't know why, and then when you're watching them all the time and you're seeing them, and then you finally record them, then, then you're adding to you know, to the knowledge of what's going on. So that's that, that's kind of exciting. That's really exciting. It is exciting. It's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, from the mites uh, hitchhiking in the hummingbird beak to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of, lot of, like, things that you... But see, now it's not... Now it has changed because you don't have as much time. What do you mean? Now they, they don't give you much time to do this kind of filming anymore it's go in and go out you know you have to know what's happening you go in you see you go out and that's it well with us we at that time there was an advantage that we were able to spend two years on or almost a year and a half on an hour film to just do behavior now that doesn't happen so you're not seeing much of that anymore now bbc a little definitely bbc does um, does it more often than now, but even now it's getting harder and harder to do that. Basically, the economy, not as much money. Um, but we were fortunate to do uh, like films on um, the whale sharks in Belize, and we spent like from like 1998, they come mostly in April, May, and June for the spawn of the fish. And so they come in to eat the spawn when the fish are spawning, and that's like April, May, and June. So we were able to do that over a period of about two years. And we got like 15, 16 whale sharks coming in to eat the spawn, and we got some beautiful stuff where that if we were going to do that film now, we might get maybe one month, which is like 10 days during that time to do it. And so, you w- so what would a film like be like, um, or you know, describe the film that you made versus what you could get in one month shooting? It, How would it differ? Oh, God, okay, so <laughs> in, <laughs> it all depends. You must yeah. get lucky in that month. But, <laughs> but, but most of the time, you, you know, so if we, when we did the whale shark film, we had like the two years. To do it, we did one on off our own back actually, and the next they gave us like you know the the three or four months to do it. 
Now, that means that you can get the fish spawning, the fish gathering and spawning, so there's billions of fish that will come and, and gather at the bottom, and then they'll swirl up and spawn. You can get that in, in detail. Then you can get, um, you know, you have to wait for the, the whale sharks to come in. And the whale sharks will come in maybe one and one and one. And then all of a sudden, maybe one day, maybe four or five will come in. But you will get, you will, you might not get that in the ten days that, they're, that you're there. Um, or you might not get, like, all of the fish signing and all the, all the stuff and the different behaviors that they do. And, and most likely you won't. The longer time you have, the more behavior you will get, the more unu unusual things you will see, and which will, will make the film better and more exciting to watch. Uh, it all depends on the animal that you're, that you're working with. But for a month, you might get one or two whale sharks coming in. You might not get much behavior on the, on the fish, and then you're just left with, with uh, maybe um, a story that you have to build up yourself by narration. And so, you know, they just don't give you enough time to do things anymore. Not independence, anyway. <laughs> I know if, you, if you're doing it in-house, they might give you more time, but not independence like we used to have. I'm curious to get back to the idea of the jungle studio and wondering how you can even have and build all these enclosures and have the electric power to do what you yes. need to do what kind of equipment you know what what does your jungle what does the studio look like what kind of special equipment well, do you have it's many different enclosures out in out in our backyard and we have uh, huge lister generators like huge generators that so we don't power it by your regular power that you get everybody else gets so we have our generators that powers and we wire everything up to the sets and they're they're all wired into the set. So we put wire, we put boxes like you know for the electricity um, switches. Um, we set up everything like that with the lights inside. So everything's set up through a generator, uh, through our generators, through um, you know wiring systems to the sets. And it's so it's all it's all there. So we usually have to put extension to extensions and all that all over the place in our backyard. <laughs> Any other special lights that you have or booms? To... Yeah, we have like we have all kinds of lights. We have what they call HMI lights, or lights that you shoot. Um, they're they're just uh, to make it like if it's a cloudy day uh, or if it's a dark day. We have the special HMI lights that we use to make it uh, brighter. We have um, you know infrared equipment. We have um, you know. I don't know, just all kinds of equipment to use. I mean, that, that you normally... Now, the high definition, um, because now you need high-speed high definition, which is, uh, they call it the phantom. We don't have all that now. And that special, you have to learn how to do this, especially and special people do this stuff. So when you have to do, um, you know, high definition, high speed, then the person has to come down with the camera, and it's like, you know... It's really expensive, $15,000 a week or something. You know, it's really super expensive now to do that. But um, we still do have a lot of equipment that, that you can use with that, though. When you're finished with the animals, you mentioned that you release them back into the wild. How does What's yes. that process like? Well, it's most of the small animals. You don't release jaguars back into the wild because they're usually from the zoo or they're usually somebody's animals that we're using. But when it comes to, like, bats and stuff, mm -hmm. um, what we do is we just recapture them uh, with nets and we put them back where they came from. And we... We like we watch to see even the next night to see because um, they have a certain pattern that they that they go through. So if it's a fishing bat, that fishing bat food caught in those areas, we watch to see how they go. Most of the time, um, most of the time they're fine, you know. <laughs> or we're working with the scientist that's worked with worked with this animal before, or tagged it or whatever, and then we we recently release them back there. Frogs, if we do anything with frogs or anything with other animals, they're very easy. <laughs> just go back. Insects the same way, you know, or anything like that. So um, basically we just put them back where they came from, and they're fine. Because they're not animals that are animals that were kept in captivity. They're animals that are used to being out in the wild. 
So we give them the enclosure, the same environment as we caught them in. And so they, you know, so they adjust fairly, fairly quickly, not real quickly, but um, fairly quickly. It's just a little trauma that they have when you catch them until they get used to that. And then when you put them back, they're, you know, they're used to being there. They're, they're not animals that were kept in captivity. So there hasn't been much stress or... Um, no, or... The, only stress, the only stress mainly is when you first catch them. They're a little stressful. And then so those are the days you've got to watch the animal carefully. You've got to make sure the animal's getting fed by either feeding them, you know, with a glove by hand or uh, making sure they're eating properly. And then once they start to eat properly, uh, which normally they do, then they start doing their thing, then they're fine. So it's just first couple days that when you catch the animal, you got to make sure they're feeding. Like when we catch a hummingbird, we put it in a small enclosure, and we uh, um, have a little uh, thing with a flower on it with nectar in it. So they know it's a flower, and they'll go feed in the flower. And then as they're feeding, then we put them in a bigger enclosure with the same little hummingbird uh, feeder with the flower, and then they keep going to that, and then we put the flower. They know the flowers, so they go immediately to the flowers. So it's like a, a stepping process, though. So you make sure the animal's getting fed, the animal's, you know, not stressing out much, and then and then you keep gradually putting them into the bigger enclosure, and then, then they're fine, and then after that you capture them and release them. It's just the beginning stage that they could be um, a little stressed. How long are they usually in the enclosure? From two weeks uh, again, to two dep- months, or it uh, depends. Oh, in the enclosure, we we like to keep them in for at least like a month for filming. You know, like we, for instance, I had to train. You know, the lizards that run across the water, the Jesus Christ lizard. Right. Well, they they wanted the they wanted to do this one catching a morpho butterfly. And normally, in running across the water, so it takes it takes this. They run normally run across the water, and some of them but dive down into the water. So we build this pool and this big enclosure for them, and they wanted them catching a morpho butterfly. So I raise the morpho butterflies and I let them out in this enclosure, and then they go down and feed on the fruit. So what happened was, is I had to train the more the Jesus Christ lizard to go and get the morpho butterfly. And the boy, so we had fruit, which the morpho butterfly feeds on. The fruit falls from the tree. The morpho goes onto the fruit and feeds on the fruit. And then we we're hoping that the the you know lizard goes and eats the morpho butterfly. But we found out that they really particularly didn't like the morpho butterflies. <laughs> but we were pressured to do this. So we got mealworms, and behind the fruit, I used to put these mealworms. You know, the little worms that you, they sell in these shops for to feed animals with. And in this big enclosure, we must have had about 10 lizards. And they finally figured out that there was mealworms behind this fruit. So they started to come down and eat the mealworms, but not the morpho butterflies. So what I had to do was keep taking, the first start off with 10 mealworms and then t- take two out and eight mealworms and take you know two more out until I only had one mealworm. And then when I had one mealworm and then there was no mealworms, it took them about three days to figure out there's no mealworms and that they better eat and then they ate the morpho butterfly. <laughs> it took... <laughs> It took me about two months for that to happen. So in that case, it wasn't really a natural behavior that that lizard well, was it, feeding it on morpho did, butterflies? Well, yes. You see, they do eat morpho butterflies, but that's not one of their main foods. And in this big enclosure, there was other food there. You know, I mean, they were catching flies and other things, but it wasn't enough to sustain them, and I knew that there wasn't enough to sustain them, so that's I put the mealworms there. I didn't want them to die. And then when they saw they weren't enough mealworms, well, then they started eating some morpho butterflies. <laughs> in that case, in the wild, would the lizards, you say they do feed on morpho butterflies, but is it common or no? Cause there I think are they other... do eat butterflies. You know, they will eat butterflies. They eat any kind of insects. You know, so they will eat, you know, they will eat the butterflies, too. But the butterflies are are tricky, you know. Um, they normally fly off, so they're very hard to catch. Anyway, so one of them, we had a um, high-speed, high-definition camera. 
and luckily um, the morpho the morpho was on there, and the um, the lizard ran across, and we didn't know if he was going to run across and catch the morpho or just run across the water. Well, he ran across, stopped, caught the morpho, and ran and kept running. So we got that. You know, we got that on, on, on film, which was very lucky, and he did it twice. Uh, <laughs> so we were really lucky. And um, so, you know, it did happen. But after that, was, after that happened and we saw it, it also took another uh, about two weeks before he did it again, before our lizard did it again. So we had to sit there and wait for that to happen. And so every morning and every, you know, at noontime they usually don't, you know, do, they're usually like too hot to do anything. But in the morning and the evening, they'll, you know, towards the evening they'll do it. So we sat for hours and hours and hours and hours for days and days before we got it, even after we saw it happen. I know you've also filmed in Africa, and I'd love for you to tell me about one of your adventures there. But well, we have stories in Africa that are really funny. <laughs> yeah, we have stories in Africa where we'd be, I mean, things like, you know, we we had, we filmed in Botswana, and it was the Okavanga Delta, in the Okavanga Delta, and we did a three-part series about the Delta. And we were there, and we were filming these elephants coming down to this pond to to, to drink at night, beautiful moonlight. The elephant was the elephants were silver color, beautiful. And in the day, we'd be setting up. And when we'd be setting up, we'd leave our vehicle underneath the, an acacia tree and stuff. We'd have the window open a little bit. And we'd go back, and we'd see these vervent monkeys in the vehicle eating our food. And they, they'd, be, they'd be in the vehicle eating our food. They had, like, grapes and stuff, and they take the food, and they see us, and they run out with the food. I mean, they were really funny. Then there was a baboon, who we had a bag of apples, and they found the bag of apples in our car, and one of them literally saw us coming back, picked up the bag of apples, and ran with them. We ran after him, and he couldn't carry the bag, and he dropped the bag, pick the apple up and put it in his mouth and start running with the apple and he's, and he's eating it as he's running. <laughs> I mean, these, I mean, it's these animals, it was really funny. I mean, uh, I could go on, but I'm not going to go on. I love Okavango stories because I did my dissertation research in Botswana. So. <laughs> oh, you did? What did you do? Yeah. So I did it on environmental decision making in Botswana. Oh, yeah. That place is amazing, isn't it? Oh, I don't know how it is now. When when I was there, there was um, we had problems with the uh, the poor bushmen that worked on this island, Kugana, which we worked on. The river bushmen had all these villages had uh, pink eye, and uh, it spread throughout the villages. And because my medical technology background, I was. Um, they wanted me to go to the village to see, so I'd go over on boat, and then I'd walk to the villages to see what the story was. And, like, one little baby was allergic to the uh, bacteria, and his whole face was swollen. And I go, my God, nobody's taking care of these people, and we don't have antibiotics. So I uh, got the head chief of the villages, and, um, look, you know, we need to get antibiotics. So I got them the antibiotics, and we went back, and I showed them how to put it on all their eyes and stuff, and it cleared in, like, about a week, but I'll never forget the time when we actually got onto the land, and we went through the villages, and all the kids came up to me and hugged me. That was the best thing that happened to me in Botswana. They remembered, and, and they came up and hugged me, and, but, you know, it was, like, it was really um, rewarding. There were so many good interesting things that happened to me there, not only with the wildlife, but with the people. I'd love for you to tell us one last wildlife story from Botswana. And I know you had a close encounter with a spitting cobra. We were um, at this guy's area where we were building these sets to do the aardvark. You know, we were doing little set work there. And we needed a spitting cobra. And you know, like how the bathrooms are, where they have the papyrus, the um, how they build outside bathrooms? It's the papyrus, right, right that they use, right. right? So when I went in, and inside the papyrus, I saw this snake. And I saw him going inside between the papyrus. And I said, oh, my God, it looks like a spitting cobra, and I saw its eye. And, of course, I go to pull its tail, 
and his head sticks up. And I went, oh, man, and I turned my head, and he, as I turned my head, he got me straight in the eye. It was just like spot on. I went, oh, man. Luckily, I was by water. And so I put the sink on because I was in the bathroom. I put the sink on and I rinsed my eye out and I got most of the venom out. But that didn't stop me. I ended up catching the snake. I pulled them all the way down and I had a bag. I, I ran to get a bag. I first ran to get the bag and then I pulled them out and I caught them and were able to film them in slow motion spitting. <laughs> <laughs> so your reaction... Uh... <laughs> No, I said, I'm getting you. I was really mad. He spit me in. He got me in the eye, and this guy's not going to go. So I caught him anyway, and we did film him, and uh, we got him spitting in slow motion, and then uh, we let him go. (laughs) And the other hard time is when I did have MS, and I lost my legs, my use of the legs, when I was doing the Anaconda film. Really? yeah, when I we're doing the anaconda film, and I had problems with my stomach. We went to Venezuela, and I was having numbness in my legs, and I wasn't sure why. And we were out in the field, and all of a sudden, one of my legs went numb, and I had pain up my spine. And I thought, oh my god, the pain was so bad, and I fell over, and I couldn't walk. My legs just went. So they medevaced me out of the swamp. And they sent and they got me into a hospital in Caracas, and I had a great um, neurologist who said we're going to do an MRI. And so he checked and he saw a little bit of lesions on my spine, and he said, "You know, I think this could be MS, but we're not sure." And I said, "Oh, finally, good. We figured out what's wrong with me because I had a lot of problems before that, and we couldn't figure out." I said, "Just, just do what you need to do, and get me out of the hospital, and I want to go back out in the." out into the swamp. So they gave me, like, steroids to bring down the inflammation in your nerves, and I was still in a wheelchair. But I went back out, and these guys carried me through the swamp, and I was directing the film in a, in the swamp. <laughs> and I was telling everybody, over there, go over there, do this. And I wasn't going to leave the film because it took me so long to get it to that point. <laughs> they could, it was like, and so they couldn't find this female that they let go. They let a female go, and, they, and the female was big, and they couldn't find it. And everybody's, they have no shoes on, and they're in the swamp feeling around for the anaconda because it feels like a tire, rubber tire. So they're, they're all feeling around with their feet, Richard and, and the scientists and everybody, right? And I'm sitting in the chair, and I see this bird going crazy, this Chicana bird, she's going crazy, he's jumping up and down, up and down. I'm going, the snake's over there, because usually birds go crazy when there's a snake around, and it's hard to see them in the swamp because there's vegetation on top of the water. And I said, the snake's over there, and nobody's paying attention to me. And I screamed for Richard, and Richard went over, and he felt it, and it was, the snake was there. And (laughs) so we got the snake... And I was sitting in the chair, and then Richard was filming the snake. And as he's filming it, there's a rubber around the lens, and the snake came up to bite him. He luckily missed his ear and and got the rubber. And there's now a big, um, you know, like snake bite. <laughs> so now we got a. a, a I said we should sell that for a lot of money, you know. It, <laughs> <laughs> the rubber has a, a piece off of it from the bite of the uh, anaconda. <laughs> that could go for a lot on eBay. <laughs> yeah, that could. Anyway, there you go. I'm done. <laughs> no, but thank you so much, Carol. <laughs> okay. All right. It was fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with documentary wildlife filmmaker Carol Foster about making nature films in her jungle studio in Belize. Edited transcripts of selected programs are available on my website, laurelnemi.com, and also on mongabay.com. That's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. You can also find archived episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes, at my website, laurelnemi.com, and at laurelnemi.podbean.com. You can stream The Wildlife live at theradiator.org every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Wildlife can also be heard on the Animal Wise Radio Network, which is available nationally and internationally and is broadcast to any mobile internet device via Live 365, a 24-7 radio network. 
course, if you have any comments about this show or ideas for future ones, you can email me at laurel at laurelneamy.com. The Wildlife is generously underwritten by the Lake Champlain Land Trust, a nonprofit organization permanently conserving the lands, lakeshore, critical wildlife habitats, and natural areas of Lake Champlain. More information is available online at lclt.org. This has been The Wildlife. I'm your host, Laurel Neamey, and you're listening to The Radiator, 105.9 FM, WOMMLP in Burlington, Vermont.